0: The Word of God says in the 119th psalm and the 128th verse, Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Let's take that verse from David's pen by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and apply it to marriage today. Amen. I'd like to take one sermon to preach to you about the importance of your marriage. The young couples in the church married in the last five years, other than an exception or two, will be going away for 45 hours later this week for a couple's retreat, at which time they'll be exhorted with a great deal of post-marital reminders and instruction. The specific goal of this sermon is to identify reasons to motivate you to improve your marriage. That's my purpose. That's the mission statement, if you will, of this sermon to motivate you to improve your marriage. And I want to do that by showing from the Bible how important your marriage is in the sight of God. It will set the table for the young couples that are going to be with me a few days from now, and it will help the rest of you as well. The crucial human factors toward perfection in any endeavor are humility The humbleness to accept correction from the Word of God, conviction, the admission that you're wrong, and diligence, the effort to make some changes. So those are necessary, and I hope you'll supply them to the Word of God. How important to you are God's commandments, God's wisdom, God's providence, and soon coming judgment in light of your marriage? Your burden of guilt, both now and in the day of judgment, depends on what you've heard. And you're going to hear some right now. So listen. The consequences, both now and later, in your life and others' lives, are great by your response to this message. Some are doomed by generational dysfunction. They were born to idiotic parents, and they perpetuate the example that they had set for them. And they do it by being lazy and selfish rebels, that cannot get over themselves. One thing we want to do is get over ourselves and submit to the Bible. And so we want to break generational sin cycles. We, you may have come from a home situation where husband and wife did not love each other the way the Bible describes, but that doesn't mean you have to perpetuate their ignorance and idiocy and hatred toward one another. You can break that cycle by the grace of God. And you should purpose to do so. Some are doomed by personal dysfunction because they're lazy and selfish rebels that will not get over themselves. We don't want to be defeated and ignorant because we had parents that didn't show us the right way. But we don't want to be lazy and selfish because we're into habits and we think that we're right. Your thoughts are worthless. Your thoughts are scum, sir. The Bible's the only book that's true. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. That's the attitude we want to have. Here's the opportunity of a lifetime. For God's glory, others rejoicing, and your pleasure and profit to make some changes in your marriage. Putting this together, I had to come running out of my office And go tell my wife that I was sorry. I wasn't a better husband. And I'm I'm ashamed, but I'm not ashamed enough to not tell you that. So I tell you. Because it's, it's been speaking to me for some time. And I hope that it speaks to you today. Let's look in our Bibles at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Remember my purpose. This is not a marriage seminar today. The purpose is to try to make your marriage important enough from the Word of God that you'll make some changes. I come to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and the book of philosophy in the Bible written by Solomon the wise man, the preacher of Israel, concludes this way in verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. The first appeal that I want to make to you is that you should want to change your marriage because you fear God and you want to keep His commandments. With the weight of this verse being sufficient for us. I'm not going to lay a lot of verses on for each point because it's not necessary. God has spoken clearly about marriage. There's a whole lot in the Bible about what kind of a husband you should be or what kind of a wife you should be. What are you going to do about it? This verse tells you what you ought to do by a man that's, that was infinitely wiser than you. And I'm going to go ahead and use infinite because it's close enough. Even though it's not mathematically correct. How much do you fear God, as this verse tells you to do, as the conclusion of the whole matter of life, how much do you fear God to change your marriage? If you think about your spouse's selfishness, Right now, you're a fool. You should be thinking about yourself. If your marriage disappoints you, it's your fault, not their fault. That is so easy to figure out. There are people in marriages with negligent or downright odious spouses that can be very happy because they have the Lord first and they're fulfilling every part of the marriage that God gave them. A measure of loving and fearing God is how well you obey Him towards your spouse. And so when we look at Ecclesiastes 12, 13, let it not be some vague philosophical conceptual idea of fearing God and keeping His commandments, but let's apply it to our marriages. Let's glorify God with our marriages. You may turn to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. Colossians 3 17. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Recently I have used with you First 1 Corinthians 10.31 that says, And whether therefore ye eat or drink, whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. My second point is that we, we want to glorify God with our marriages because the Bible says in this verse that you're looking at, Colossians 3.17, Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Everything you say to your spouse and everything you do to your spouse ought to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Can I get your attention that you can glorify God by your marriage and you should? The more you do it in Jesus' name, giving thanks to God brings greater glory to God in your marriage. As loving enemies makes you God's children in Matthew chapter 5, loving your spouse also makes you God's children because you're doing something he's commanded that the natural man does not do naturally. A naturally hateful and selfish soul is what we were by nature. But when we love our spouses the way God tells us to, we show his work of grace in our lives and it glorifies him. Is God well pleased with you like he was with Job? Do you know what kind of a husband Job was? God could say to Satan, This is my servant Job. There's none like him in the earth. He fears God and eschews evil. And that included his wife. Are you like that? Let's improve our marriages to be like Job when it comes to marriage. Are you willing to glorify God's providence in your life? Look at Acts chapter 15 and verse 18. Acts 15, 18 says... Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. How does that apply to marriage? It applies this way. From the beginning of the world, God had chosen and ordained the spouse that you have. You say, no, I made a mistake in marrying the person that's sitting beside me. The blessed God of heaven knew that you were going to make a mistake, and he went ahead and let you make a mistake for the perfection of your soul, because we trust the providence of God. He knows the end from the beginning. And if you, if, you know, if you're even thinking that to yourself, you're just showing yourself you're either a reprobate or really stupid or living in rebellion against God. For you to say, I made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes even when he allows you to make a mistake because in your mistake, God has perfection planned if you'll just submit to the word of God and treat your spouse the way that he tells you to. This is God's providence. I thank God that a man from a coal mining family decided to borrow 50 bucks and take a car and drive to Ypsilanti, Michigan to see if he could get a job in an auto plant there and eventually conceived, and he didn't conceive. You know better than that. The, the wife that he brought from Virginia, the hills of Virginia, conceived, and I got my wife out of that transaction, so I'm thankful for GM which makes me thankful for Ford and Chrysler as well because he actually was a machine repairman for Chrysler and I'm thankful for God's providence in arranging it all to give me the best wife in this congregation and I'm very thankful for her but you know it's all by God's providence. Amen. She lived 3 houses down the street. All by God's providence things happened. I got a motorcycle, her father got a motorcycle. I went over to show him he would have been my boy scout troop leader my motorcycle. He said, "Let's go for a ride." on our two motorcycles, and he said, Sherry, why don't you come along and ride behind her father? And we drove 20 miles out in the country, and he made the biggest mistake of his life, but that was under the sovereignty and providence of God. And he said, Sherry, why don't you ride back with Jonathan? Well, you know, when you goose the throttle on a motorcycle, a girl tends to grab on pretty tight, and it was a good, it was a good relationship with my former Boy Scout troop leader. And all of that is to say it's the providence of God. So how important is your marriage? Listen, here's how it works. God in his providence arranged this myriad, this infinite number of permutations and combinations so that little girl right there has been my wife for 35 years. Now how am I treating her in light of God's providence and bringing the two of us together? And that makes me sweat. Because she's looking at me. And I hope that you're sweating along with me. In comparison, any earthly father's suggestion or arrangement is severely deficient to what God does. Billions of factors were brought together for your marriage. There's 7 billion people on earth right now. God's chess game with infinite combinations arranged your spouse. Whether you were foolish or wise in the decision, and I did some very foolish and wrong things in that early relationship, only fools or rebels are going to ignore God's providence now. I'm thankful, and I'm very thankful, and it should stir me up to want to be a great husband to Sherry. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and let me remind you of the painful thing that, things that you said in your wedding. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the first seven verses are Solomon, the wise man, warning us that when we go into the house of the Lord, we better be slow to speak because God is in heaven and we are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. It is better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And all of you have vowed, you young couples, I'm going to get my hands on you in a few days. You all made vows and I helped you come up with those vows That you were going to make. And you're going to live up to them. Or God's going to pound you. Because I'm going to remind you of them. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It says in verse 5. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow. Than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Remember the purpose of this sermon. It is to give you the motivation to change your marriage. It's to provoke you to want to improve. The kind of spouse you are. You said some big and bold and formal things before the God of heaven, before the elect angels, before your family, before witnesses, and we were all trusting the fact that you were going to keep your words. You better keep them because God tells you to keep them, and you gave them in the name of the Lord. You said, As the Lord liveth, I will. As the Lord liveth, I will. You will. You better. I better. Lord, help us. You did this in a very formal way, and rightly so, and you did it with full disclosure and knowledge of the terms of the covenant. You had those terms of that covenant given to you in writing because I make sure of it so that you can remember what you promised. You are a traitor, guilty of covenant breaking and other sins if you don't rightly perform in your marriage. It doesn't matter what your spouse is, not what you thought, because you're not what they thought. And so Psalm, 5, Psalm 15 comes to bear, excuse me, where it says that a righteous man swears and keeps his oath, even though it ends up being costly. So if you think right now keeping your half of the marriage is costly, and I can tell you this, it's no costlier than the other person on the other side of your pitiful marriage, because they have to be married to you, so don't think that way as is what I'm trying to get across. Keep your vows. So right there, we ought to be convicted. I did say some big and bold things because the pastor that wrote my vows made them very thorough. You want to preserve your integrity. Look at Proverbs chapter 3. And you might not think that it applies to marriage, but given my purpose in preaching to you right now, look at Proverbs 3.29. Devise not evil against thy neighbor, Seeing he dwelleth securely by thee. I want to give you another reason. Forget the words that came out of you in public. What about all the words that came out of you in private? On what kind of a spouse you were going to be. You may, you, you did tell the person that you married what kind of a spouse you were going to be. It gave you great pleasure to make all those wonderful promises, hoping that the promises would get that person to be your spouse, and to make the horrible decision to say I do to your question. Are you going to preserve your integrity in the matter? Look at this. Devise not evil against thy neighbor, seeing he dwelleth securely by thee. The person that married you married you in the security that you were a man or a woman of integrity, and you were going to keep the word of God as it is rules, and defines marriage. So what kind of integrity do you have? Honest persons with integrity will keep all the informal marriage commitments you made. Your spouse, your spouse's family, your family, believed all your promises. Now live up to them. We don't practice arranged marriages. You chose the person you're married to. You chose the person with full disclosure and full knowledge. And you chose them with great zeal, and great excitement, and great commitment, and great promises. Now live up to them and show us your integrity. Because if you don't, you're guilty of another word that starts that, that ends with E, and it's called treachery. And look with me now at the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 2, and I may not have to refer to it since hopefully you read it last night, that I think it has the word treachery in it just a time or two, huh? Amen. Like maybe a time of five? Or six, treachery. What is treachery? It's when you marry someone and don't live up to your end of the bargain. You compromise. You cheat. You don't give them the full deck. You don't give them the full wife. You don't give them the full husband that God told you to give them and that you promised you would. Now in verses 11 down through 12, the sin that's involved are the men of Judah marrying pagan wives. It says that, if you were to read it. Verse 13 says, And this have ye done again. Meaning, again, there's a second sin now being listed. And the second sin is you're hurting your Jewish wives. Verses 11 and 12 is a sin against God, marrying an unbeliever. Verse 13 is a sin against your wife by causing her to go to the altar of God with tears. She's crying. Well, you know, some girls cry... Because they're just babies. That's not in this passage. That's not even close to this passage. They're just immature and they're babies. So they cry. We are talking about real tears to God of pain caused by a polygamous husband who's married pagan foreign wives and forsaken the promises that he made to the wife of his youth by covenant. And so there's two sins here. And verse 14 goes on to describe, it's called treachery. And look at the... Wherefore, what, what's God so upset about? What are, where are these two sins? Wherefore, especially this second sin of a crying wife, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Notice, it's not wives, because no woman gets married thinking that there's more going to be involved. When she's the wife of thy youth. It's the wife of thy youth, and she is thy companion, not companions. And then it goes on to say that God could have made as many wives as he wanted for Adam, but he only made one because it's a monogamous marriage of one man loving one wife that creates godly children. And when you look in the Bible, you can see the foolishness of polygamy and how it results in dysfunctional, messed up, terrible families. Whether you start with Abraham or you end up with David or Solomon or Rehoboam and and the rest of them in the Old Testament... God allowed it in his long-suffering, but it was not his plan. He tells you that right here. My point is treachery. The word, again, in verse 13, tells us that there's a sin that God has recognized, and that is an unhappy spouse. And this applies as much to men. If a man is crying to God because his wife is defrauding him, she's defrauding him of honor, she's defrauding him of sex, she's defrauding him of service, she's defrauding him of reverence, The the Lord sees a man's tears and a man's heart just as well. In fact, if we were to weigh the whole measure of Scripture, the woman's more responsible to make sure the man's happy in the marriage than the man is responsible to make the woman happy because the woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. I just want to make sure I get both sides of the aisle. And we don't even separate you two for assemblies yet. If she cries at God's altar for a justifiable fault of yours, you forfeit heaven's favors. But the reverse is also true. Note, this is a powerful verse. Treachery. You are guilty of treachery because of what you promised, committed, and implied, and you don't bring it to the marriage. You're still a little baby in the marriage. You're still selfish in the marriage. You don't give the reverence that's due in the marriage. You don't give the sex that's due in the marriage. You're cheating the marriage. You're you're guilty of treachery. And God sees every bit of it. Praise His name. I'm glad there's a great marriage counselor in heaven that takes care of marriages like that. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, in the last verse this time, Ecclesiastes 12, and instead of verse 13, verse 14. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. I want to remind you that the day of judgment, the God of heaven is going to ask you about the daughter of his that he gave to you. The God of heaven is going to ask you women about the prince of his that he gave to you. And he is going to get an account of your life. And you're not going to snow him like you try to snow others. God's going to tear you apart. He's going to dive into the the depths of your soul. He's going to bring up the events of your marriage. The things that you think are private and secret are going to be opened. They're all written down in his book. The books of the works that are brought before the God of heaven. And so we're going to give an account to God of how I've treated her. Lord, forgive me for not being perfect. I should be perfect. I want to stand before you and give an account that I was a loving, faithful, kind Generous, gracious, cherishing, nourishing, honoring husband. The day of judgment should get our attention. Your marriage is your largest relationship and endeavor, greatly exceeding everything else in your life. In the ten parts of a great man's life, marriage duties are second. Your professional duties are sixth. Because you spend so much time, so much greater time with that woman, and that relationship is so much more important than your job. A job is just a means to an end so that the woman and you can sit down in a love love seat and have some crackers and peanut butter together. That's what a job's for. It's not the end of life, it's just to help you with your wife. I want you to think about the day of judgment that's coming. God's providence in giving you a spouse and the instruction in His word that He's given you about a great marriage, He's going to hold us accountable. And to whom much has been given, much shall be required. Lord, help us to be faithful. The Bible tells us, and the Lord Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew 19, that what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. So we're going to do everything in our power to make sure that our marriages are never put asunder in legal formality or private dysfunctionality. And he knows there isn't really any difference between the two. And we're not going to let there be Any difference between the two? We don't want either of them. Sixty percent of every marriage that's entered into in these days results in a divorce. But that doesn't make it acceptable. Listen, and so many people don't even bother getting married. They just live together or they just have casual sex with anybody that wants to test their public sewer. Divorce now occurs quite acceptably among even carnal Christians. But that isn't justified for us. We want to hate divorce right along with the God of heaven. We want to stop blasphemers. Look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Remember that my points, the points that I am reeling through with you right now, are to get your attention. That you should go home and be a better spouse than you were yesterday. So that you can have a better marriage than you had yesterday. For the reasons that I have given and the reasons that I'll give. And the reason right now is because we want marriages that stop blasphemers. Titus chapter 2 and verse 4. These are the things that aged women are to teach young women. That they may teach the young women to be sober. To love their husbands. To love their children. And that's the order. Children are such a short-term, temporary relationship for a mother compared to her husband. But there'll be more to say on that. To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good Obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Notice that last phrase, that the word of God be not blasphemed. That's my point. Is your marriage such that it gives occasion for the word of God to be blasphemed? Because when people see your marriage, or if they could see your marriage, they would say, they call themselves Christians and they treat each other that way? The word of God's a lie. Christianity is a lie. And so the Word of God has been blasphemed because your marriage doesn't reflect the loving, tender, patient, gentle, serving, reverent, love-making marriage that it should be. Lord, help us to stop the mouths of blasphemers. When marriages are dysfunctional or as wives, or wives are dysfunctional as it's taught here, if they don't do these things, It allows the gospel to be ridiculed. Your life, including your marriage, can either adorn the gospel, that means to make it beautiful, or it shames it, it spots it, it blemishes it. We don't want that. We want to oppose the wicked. Look at Proverbs chapter 28. Listen, we live in one of the most wicked societies the world has ever seen. We don't send out petitions and we don't march in front of abortion clinics And we don't go and demonstrate at funerals of sodomites like some do. We don't believe that the Lord has called us to do that. But there is another way that we oppose the wicked. We want to oppose sodomites. We want to oppose lesbians. We want to oppose divorce. We want to oppose dysfunctional marriages. We want to oppose abortion. But here's how we do it. Proverbs 28 and verse 4. They that forsake the law praise the wicked. But such as keep the law, contend with them. Do you know how we're going to contend against all this casual sex, whoremongering, sodomy, lesbians, divorce, abortion, and everything else that's out there? By having great marriages that are full of love, and children that are loved, and children that are trained, and children that love each other and love their parents, and a godly home and a godly family, like we just sang. By doing that, we contend against them. They're saying... That marriage is outdated. Marriage is just an invention of Christianity. They're trying to get rid of it. You don't need to be married. You can live together with someone without marriage. You can get a divorce and try another person, then another person, then another person. We're going to prove them wrong by living God's word. Do you want to give any effort to something that's that great? We want to shine the gospel light. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men. You heard about our youth retreat recently, where this was the theme of their gathering together. Well, we as married couples should let our gospel light shine. How can there be a better way for all concerned than to see that once selfish people selflessly love their spouse in the way that the Bible describes? Let's let your mutual love of each other in your marriage, your respect for each other, your service to each other, and the resulting romance and power shine. Let your light so shine. We can do it. We better do it. We should do it. Since everyone in the world wants to find love, let's have loving marriages that prompt questions of our hope. You two seem to be in love so much. Tell me about it. What's the difference? That you've been married for 35 years and you still love each other. That you say that you love each other more now than you ever have in the first 34. That even though the the old man in that marriage is a decrepit old pastor, you're having the best sex of your 35 years. You say, do you have to talk that openly? My children are all saying that to me right now. They're writing notes and hoping that somebody has the courage to bring them to me. But it's a choice. The world's looking for love. Let's show them love. Whitney Houston didn't know anything about love. The greatest love of all, she wasn't even close to the weakest love of all. Let's show them love. The love God had for us by sending his son Jesus Christ and the love we ought to have for one another. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. Listen, I know that I've got so many points you already feel like the horse died and I've jumped on it and I'm beating it with a baseball bat, but I'm only part way through. Just hold on. There might be something that gets your attention. It all gets my attention. I came running out of my office. I want to glorify God. I want to esteem all His precepts concerning all things to be right and hate every false way. I want to honor His providence in my life. I want to shut the mouths of blasphemers. I want to let the light of the gospel shine. I want to fight against sodomites as much as anyone, but the Bible way of fighting them is to have a great heterosexual marriage. Right. So honey, get ready. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. God said about Adam, though Adam was a sinless man in a sinless world, with God as his friend and just a little job of dressing the garden and keeping it and the fruit off of every tree of all kinds that he could eat freely, the Bible tells us. God said it wasn't good for him to be alone. Man's soul is desolate, empty, and pained without some intimate companions. Now God's the best of those. And very close soul friends that the Bible describes in two places as being superior to wives are very important. And a wife is very important. And here the solution was not God, nor was it male friends. It was a wife that was to answer this need that God saw. The God that divides soul and spirit said this about a sinless man walking with him that he needed a wife. The Bible describes the singular wife of a man's youth as his companion. We just read that in Malachi chapter 2. And is she not thy companion? You picked her to be your companion all the way through life, and now you're making her cry and her praying because of your wickedness, or you're marrying pagan foreign wives? She's the companion. The human soul craves closeness with someone, some need more than others. But if they need more than others, they're really not close to any. Is usually the way it works among those people. But David had someone that he loved as his own soul. Do you know his name? Now, I gave it away by using a male pronoun. His name was Jonathan. But the wife is the one that we're referring to here. And it's the wife that God created in Genesis chapter 2. And this applies to the wife as well. Because in Ruth chapter 3 and verse 1, Naomi said, Let me find rest for you, my daughter. Because that moves us to this point, that there is a wise use of rest when a wife, a woman, gets a husband and becomes a wife. We can end loneliness. It's so much fun to do things with someone else. And there's more to say on that as I proceed. But hold with me. This is about your marriage. And you're going to give an account before God in all these aspects of what you did in your marriage. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now some of you that know your Bibles well, your eyes just lit up, your ears perked up, because here we go in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in the first five verses. Marriage is designed to save two people from fornication. Fornication is sex outside the marriage bed in its broadest expression. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, they were writing from one of the most lascivious cities in the world. It may have taken the prize back then. There was actually a verb to to Corinthianize is to make something lascivious. The sex in this city was rampant in the temple worship of the pagan gods. And so they wrote to the apostle with some questions. And if you read the whole chapter, you know that virgins are involved in marriage and marriage to unbelievers and so forth. But in verse 1, now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And in this chapter, he will explain that he's not talking about shaking hands or patting her on the back. He's talking about marriage and that if a person could go without marriage, it was better than being married for reasons given in the chapter. But if you're already married, any of those thoughts have nothing to do with you because you are married. Verse 2, nevertheless, even though it is good if a man doesn't have a wife, from verse 1, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, so that you're not tempted to have sex outside marriage, so that you're not tempted by all the prostitutes in the city, so that you're not tempted by casual sex, so that you're not tempted by flirting secretaries at the office, Let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. And so the Word of God gives us another reason why our marriage should be important to us. Marriage is to avoid fornication, so it requires satisfying, frequent sex. In this lascivious generation, where our nation is very much like Corinth, it's crucial. Note that monogamous marriage... Not monotonous marriage, but monogamous marriage can effectively defeat fornication. Let me read the verse to you again and emphasize the words that it's one wife for each man and one husband for each woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man, that singular, have his own wife, singular, and let every woman, singular, have her own husband, singular. There should be no thoughts, no efforts, no attempts, and no tempting of ourselves to sex with anyone else. But the spouse that God providentially brought us, the spouse that we promised, we would never want sex with anyone else but them. Avoid fornication. Do benevolence. In the third verse, let the husband render unto the wife. Do benevolence. Now that's a euphemism. That's when you say something that might offend some sensibilities. You say it in a pleasant way. Due benevolence means that you owe your spouse sex how they want it, where they want it, when they want it, and how often they want it. It has nothing to do with what you think is good sex. It has nothing to do with how you want it, where you want it, when you want it, and how often you want it. It has to do with them, because it's due them. It's called due benevolence. And the word benevolence is kindness and love shown toward them that you owe them so they won't think about going outside the marriage. That's due benevolence. And each marriage spouse owes it to the other. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. Now, brethren, I do like the order of God's Word sometimes. And so before you men get too eager to jump into this passage, it puts the wife first. The husband owes the wife due benevolence. That means every husband should be thinking about what does my, like, my wife like? Is she more of a romanticist than I am? Does she like a long lead up to what we we're going to do? Does she like her back being rubbed, her hair being played with? Does she like sweet nothings whispered in her ear? Does she like a dinner... Does she like wine? Does she like time for a hot bath? What does my wife like? It's due benevolence. You say it sounds like you're already at the couple's retreat. No, it'll get even better. Just make sure you come because we've already got your tickets. Avoid fornication. Do benevolence. Your spouse is not you. So it requires a lot of communication and experimentation so that you can fulfill that verse. If you don't fulfill that verse, I want to tell you something when you meet God. He's going to tell you why he ordained marriage and why he said what he said in his Bible about sex and why he wrote a book called The Song of Solomon that is so filled with sexual descriptions. And if you have defrauded your spouse, you're guilty of covenant breaking of the marriage. As much as adultery is covenant-breaking of the marriage, you have defrauded your spouse of what God said you owe them. And it goes on to explain it in case you didn't get the message from the third verse. Verse 4, The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. Who has the power, the authority, or the right, or the privilege to the wife's body? The husband. The wife can't say, no, no, not tonight, dear. Not tonight. I'm just a little too tired. You know, if there are exceptions where you want to be merciful to your spouse, that is a subject for another time. If you're even thinking about exceptions and you're trying to make excuses and you're already the one that I'm preaching against from this passage. The wife hath not power of her own body. She does not have the authority, the right, the privilege to say no, no, or to not say it, but not to give it. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Come on, you lazy old man and are getting old. If the wife needs you, then you're going to perform one way or another. You can and you will. I wish I was 25 instead of 55. But what I said earlier is true. And I thank God that marriage can be like wine. That it gets better. I'll tell you, it can last a whole lot longer than it did when I was 25. You say, I can't believe you just said that. Well, I'm not sure I do either. But let's go to the next point. The next point says in verse 5, listen, the Bible is very plain. If you don't think it's plain, I'll send you an outline with hundreds of examples of sex being mentioned in the Bible that you're probably ignorant of. And it goes so far beyond anything I've said, it'll shock you. It will shock you. This is a plain matter. And it's something we're supposed to be doing Very frequently. Look at this. How frequently? Defraud ye not one the other. Because when you don't give them the sex they need, the sex they want, that would make them sexually happy and sexually fulfilled, then you have defrauded your spouse. It doesn't matter that you gave them the bare minimum. It doesn't matter that you gave them what you would give in order to get what you got. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time. That's where the two of you agree. For a time... That you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. That's where you're going to get very serious with God. You stop having sex so that you can fast and pray. And then it says, and come together again. And guess what that means? Okay, that Satan tempts you not for your incontinency. Now I want to ask, how long do most of you fast and pray? I've heard a day. uh, Does somebody want to raise their hand and say it's usually 40 days and 40 nights for me? Somebody want to try that one on me? Well, if you're able to see implications of a verse, it tells you that the length of time you go without sex should be approximately equivalent to the time that you fast and pray. So the longest I've ever fasted is I skipped a meal. Well, your spouse is in the good is in the good life. But remember, it's gotta be why? How, where, when, and how often that they want. Sex is a two-way street. Forget you. Give what your spouse wants and wait. Forget you. You know, if all you're thinking about is you, well, I don't get as much as I want. Well, why don't you give your spouse what they need? And that may be just to grow up and act like a man instead of being a little boy. Do you know that grown women don't like going to bed with little boys? Do you know that because you're a little boy and you whine and you cry and you complain and you criticize, you're a little boy. Women don't want to go to bed with a little boy and they get bitter being married to a little boy. So it's really, really scary when you come in and take off your clothes. Give your spouse what they need and what they want. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Oh, marriage should be a helping relationship between two people. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. It's a verse we've been to already. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. God created Eve for Adam as a helper. A helper that is meet, That means suitable or fit or proper for Adam. A, a woman's a great thing to have around in so many ways to make a man greater it's a man's world god created the man first and he created the woman for the man he did not create the man for the woman that's one of the most basic things that you need to learn to make your marriage be what it should be it's so plainly taught it's taught in genesis chapter 2 and 3 and it's taught in first corinthians chapter 11 and that isn't to put down women that's to put women up because that's the highest position god gave them and that's to be a helper to a husband More than just a companion or friend, a wife can support and leverage his abilities. A man alone will generally not amount to what he could have achieved with a wife. You say, what about John the Baptist? Yeah, and I'll say, what about Paul? They were exceptions. I'll say, what about Adam? How are you going to populate this planet when the Lord said replenish the earth if you don't have Eve? A wife can help leverage a man. That man that's in Proverbs chapter 31, it says that when he sits in the gate of the city with the elders of the city, he is spoken about and he receives lofty accolades because of his wife. Because she's leveraged his ability. He has no need of spoil. He can safely trust in her to take care of everything at home so he can be a champion on city council. Oh, brethren, if we, if we, we're just stupid if we don't maximize our wives. If we don't love and cherish and nourish and praise and help our wives, we're just shorting our own lives. You know, we're doing the old cutting off our nose to spite our face. We're really foolish. Because the Lord said a wife is a helper. A man neglecting his marriage through selfishness or any other sin hates God's wisdom. Because God's wisdom is you're better with a wife. It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper for him. And that's true of the woman as well. Naomi said to Ruth, let me help you find rest for yourself, Ruth. And in a proper that it may be well with thee. Oh, that it may be well with thee is Ruth 3.1. Let me find let me help you or find rest for you that it may be well with thee. A woman's life is improved when she's married because she's got a man who's going to protect her. He's got a, she's got a man who's going to help go earn a living for the family. And the Bible tells us that in a proper marriage, a man provides for and protects his wife from danger and harm. She's got a sanctuary in which to live, labor, and love while he goes out for the bacon, if he's a loving husband. Otherwise, it's not a sanctuary, it's hell. To have a complaining, criticizing, whining, negative, hateful husband is hell on earth. And some father somewhere ought to be rolling over in his grave forever doing that to a daughter. Rather than being used or abused by other men, A single woman can be used or abused. A married woman has a committed husband for life when that husband is doing what he should be. By working hard for that husband and with that husband, she can help him build the family estate. All these are reasons the Bible gives that marriage is important. And all these are reasons that we're going to give an account to God for how we conducted ourselves in our marriages. You know, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. For those of you that are learning your Bibles along with me, you know where I'm going. I'm going to verses 9 through 12. We have four verses there and four reasons why marriage is a great thing. And if you don't make the most of your marriage, you are violating the wisdom of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one. The married life is better than the single life. Because, and there's four reasons given. Because they have a good reward for their labor. There's a great reward for your labor. Why does the quarterback want to throw a touchdown? Because it feels good? Is that why a quarterback wants to throw a touchdown? A quarterback wants to throw a touchdown, I hope you can think, because the team is going to celebrate together the scoring of six points. Because the father of that quarterback is going to praise him for being a son that he's proud of. And because a girlfriend is going to meet him for some public adoration because he threw a touchdown. All that's for other people. And you get married so that you can share the rewards of life. Two are better than one because they have a reward for their labor. When a husband gets a promotion or a raise, the best part is sharing it with a wife. The wife also gets to share rewards of her labor and make her husband very proud, like it says in Proverbs chapter 31. He's spoken of in the city gates. Her husband, he rises up and calls her blessed because there's a reward for labor. You know, when a husband comes home and says, I love having this quiet, clean, peaceful home, then the wife has a reward for those minutes or hours spent dusting, vacuuming, doing laundry, and doing dishes. There's a reward, and there's a division of labor that we have settled on and together we're rewarded by being married. Are you rewarded in your marriage because your marriage is what it should be? It's sharing life that makes life worthwhile. Or hard work is but empty, painful slavery. It's fun doing it, knowing that you can share it with a wife. A great dinner. A nice home. A comfortable car. A beautiful sight like a sunset. Success in some endeavor. Some event that you witness. Or an experience Those things are all much better when you can share them with a wife. Oh, a great dinner by yourself? Are you kidding me? Have you ever tried that? For those of you that have been out of town on business, you've gone and had a great dinner because the company's paying for a great dinner, and you sit there by yourself. It's pitiful. It's pitiful. You want to box it up, bag it up, and take it home and start all over again when you have a wife to share it with. The, The Bible says this. Two are better than one for four reasons. The second reason is in verse 10, For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. You're going to fall physically. You're going to fall financially. You're going to fall emotionally. You're going to fall in various ways. But it's so wonderful to have a wife there who can help pick you up, who can encourage you, who can say kind things to you, who can say, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I think you're the best. And whatever they say, I hope you took note. I don't have to say that. All of you should know that. She shouldn't say what she says, and I says you need to see a doctor when she does try it, but I still like it inside. (laughs) You say you're mean and cruel. I didn't say I wasn't, but I want to do better. I want to have a better wife, and preparing this for you and preparing what's coming in the next few days is going to make me a better husband because I want to do all these things for the reasons that I'm giving You know, a person can fall morally, and you confess it to God, and your spouse can say, it's okay, God's forgiven you, I forgive you, let's go forward. (laughs) Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you. You can fall in so many different ways. And you know what? You promised you're going to be there. You promised you would be there when they fell, because you said, for better or for worse. The next reason, verse 11, again, if two lie together, then they have heat, but how can one be warm alone? This is the synergism. This is how two different people work together to accomplish more than the sum of what they could accomplish themselves. It's a great thing. She's different than I am. She thinks differently than I do. That's why you'd rather be around her than me. I'll tell you that right now. If you want to go to to lunch with somebody that will be pleasant, take her. You know, but the two of us together, she has a perspective on things that are different And the two of us, by putting our abilities together, can leverage ourselves to accomplish more for the Lord. But if you don't have a close marriage where you're working closely together and you're talking closely together and you're doing those things, your marriage isn't going to amount to what it can. Because two are better than one, I believe, the Bible. And I want you two to be great. I want every couple in here to be great. The last reason. And if one prevail against him... That's when one person's alone because him is a singular pronoun. And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We can fight our enemies. If you've got someone picking on you in your life, it's great to come home and have a husband that stands with you. And If it wasn't, I don't want to say that. I'm sorry they're picking on you, but that's wrong. You're great. I think you're great. I don't care about them picking on you. Two can withstand an enemy better than one can withstand an enemy. And so marriage is made for us to have a united front against our enemies that might pick on us. These are things that God put down in the Bible, and while I'm being able to teach you about marriage in the process, my real point is, are these reasons all enough for you to get serious about going home today and making your marriage better? I hope so. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. You're missing out. If you're not, if you're not working on your spouse with love and tenderness and affection and kindness and service and reverence and honor, you are missing out. You say, No, I'm not. They're missing out because they ain't getting a piece of me. Oh, they're blessed not to have you around when you talk that way. They're blessed. I'm talking about you. If you are not building the relationship with your spouse, you are missing out on life because of this verse. Ecclesiastes 9 9, Solomon's book of philosophy about the purpose of man under the sun. He said in verse 9, Live joyfully. See, this is about your life. Do you want to live it joyfully? Going to work's horrible unless you get to come home. And I'm not sure if you bought it or he bought it but get some real steaks. Oh, I've heard all about it. And then have some real baked potatoes. I heard all about them too. It was great pleasure hearing all about it. Listen, when you get get prime steaks that you can cut with a fork, now roast can be cut with a fork, but anyway, what am I talking about? Why did I chase that rabbit? Right here. Live joyfully. With the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, one was at the grill, one was putting the potatoes together, rolled in olive oil and spices, I'd never heard of it before, which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity, for that is thy portion in this life, and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Now do you see my point? Going to work for yourself is horrible. It's slavery. But to have a wife to come home to and share it with, this is your portion in a sinful world that we ruined in the Garden of Eden. It could have been a whole lot better. There wouldn't be any clothes on anyone and no one would be ashamed because we'd be like Adam and Eve. And it'd been a whole lot easier to have babies and it'd be a whole lot easier to get a paycheck than it is. Look at that verse. This this is Solomon who tried more things than you can even imagine. And he said, after a thousand women, he said, I couldn't find a good one in a thousand. All the building projects, all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the zoo animals that he had, all the instruments of music that he had, all his experimentation, he said, we can just boil it down to this, live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity. Life is vain, but something that gives it value and meaning in God's opinion and in Solomon's observations, it's a great marriage. For that is thy portion in this life. Oh, Lord, don't let us short ourselves. Let's realize God's great blessings for us. We ruined life in Eden, but God has restored it in a godly marriage. In Malachi chapter 2, did it say that monogamy, which is mono, one man for one woman, is for a godly seed? Did it say it there? Then I'll not turn you to it. God's ideal for marriage was monogamy from the start because he created Eve for Adam. He didn't create Eve and Diane and Sally or anyone else. He created Eve. The exceptions he tolerated only show his long-suffering and prove polygamy foolish. Because just look at the results of it in the Bible. The home environment and the example of a loving, monogamous marriage, one husband, one wife, who truly love each other and have a lot of fun with each other in doing everything in life together whenever they can, that is the best environment for godly, high-charactered children. If there's bickering, complaining, whining, bitterness, hate, In your home, you are destroying the character of your children. They'll never amount to anything unless God works a miracle. The order is a husband loving his wife and the wife loving her husband, and the two of them creating this peaceful, secure, loving environment for the kids to grow up in. Oh, Lord, help us. Child training. Look at Proverbs chapter 1. I'm almost done. I know that you can't really judge those words, but at least... There are a little comfort, I hope. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs 1. Child training. Child training is best accomplished. And I don't mean the godly seed that is in a secure, loving home. The, the polygamous marriage did not create a secure, loving home. The woman was always petrified and scared and angry and bitter because the man was going down the hall and passes her bedroom to go to one of the other bedrooms like David did every night. And Solomon... He, He had to have multiple houses and hotels to keep up his thousand women. It created a nightmare. Do you remember Bathsheba? When David's on his deathbed, she still does not know if he's going to keep his promise that he made to her that Solomon, her son, would be the next king of Israel. It just creates unrest. Look at Hagar and Sarah fighting in the book of Genesis because of polygamy. Yes, I agree that if we practice polygamy, it might put a little pep into your marriage because it'd become competitive. But you know what? You shouldn't need another woman to get competitive. You should need a sermon like this to get competitive. I'm going to be the best in the sight of God right. and my husband. I like. Thank you for saying that. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. My son, hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. Isn't that wonderful? When a mom and dad together are giving the same kind of wise advice to children. Look at chapter 6 and verse 20. Chapter 6 and verse 20. My son, keep thy father's commandment and forsake not the law of thy mother. Notice a husband and a wife united together in giving wise advice to a son. Look at verse 21 because 20 doesn't end with a period. Bind them continually upon thy neck and tie, and tie them, bind them continually upon thine heart, and tie them about thy neck. When thou goest, it shall lead thee. When thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. And when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. For the commandment is a law, and the light and the law is light. And reproofs of instruction are the way of life. And it goes on to describe keeping this son from strange women. But this is a husband and a wife loving each other, where the child grows up. Not with the parents playing against each other, but with the parents united with one front of gospel truth to that child. So that whatever they hear from mommy is the same as they hear from daddy. Because mom and dad are united in love in a Christian monogamous marriage training children. This is where child training works. The father is the chief instructor because the Bible says so repeatedly. But the wife does have a role like I just read to you. Proverbs 31 was written by a mother. To King Lemuel, any dysfunction in role, I'm talking to parents right now, any dysfunction in you practicing the roles that God's given you as husband and wife, in the priority that you set for each other, in love, in sex, in happiness, harms your children. And it's by God's grace that they're able to survive your unhappy marriage. Lord, help us. Marriage and parental love should trump any love that some hormone-crazed child offers or promises one of your children. You should be able to outdo it by the loving, secure environment that you create at home. 1 Corinthians 7.14 goes on and says that that a believer that stays with an unbeliever in a marriage sanctifies The unbeliever, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. When a believer stays in a marriage, even if the other spouse is a pagan, that believing spouse brings in God's blessing, protection, and sanctity into the marriage. It legitimatizes the marriage, it legitimatizes the children, and it brings God's blessing. It doesn't save unless that believing spouse Puts forth the effort, and God is merciful that their spouse was one of God's elect and comes to a knowledge of the truth by their righteous behavior. But it brings a sanctifying effect. Now, just if one believer can bring a sanctifying effect into a marriage, that's where I was headed. What about two? Double the pleasure, double the fun. Two believers are better than one. Forget that. But that's my point. What about two? If that brings God's blessing in, what about two? My last point, Hebrews 10 says that we're supposed to consider one another to provoke to love and to good works. Who in this church is going to have the most obvious, love-filled, happy, tender, mutually satisfying marriage to provoke all the rest of us to want it too. Who's going to do it? Because the Bible says that we're supposed to be provoking one another to love and to good works. A great marriage is going to do much for this church by both the young and the old observing you. A happy, loving marriage will convict and condemn the sinners in the church that don't have such a marriage themselves. Let your mutual love and respect for each other shine and empower the gospel through your lives. My goal has been to give you a few reasons to think about how important your marriage is. I hope I've given them to you. What's important? Your humility to hear what I've said, your conviction to know you haven't been doing it right, and your diligence to make some changes. How important to you are God's commandments, his wisdom, his providence, and the day of judgment that's rushing upon us. Your burden of guilt should be great now and then because you've been taught and I've been taught so much. Here's the opportunity of a lifetime. Let's say amen. Let's close this service in a godly, reverent way and let's go out of here to make our marriages all that they should be. Please pray for the young couple's retreat that it will bear fruit in all of our lives. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word and cause it to come back to our memories when we need it most, when we're faced with a tempting situation to be selfish, to be lazy, to be proud, that it will make us selfless, that it will make us energetic, that it will make us humble, and that God might be glorified in every way that I've listed by wonderful marriages in this church. May Jesus Christ, the husband of this church, be praised. Amen. Amen.